There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. Now, we have a wonderful guest today. General Charles C. Krulak served honorably in the United States Marine Corps for 35 years. And I'm proud to say that he is my US Naval Academy classmate in the great class of 1964. General Krulak's military service brought him into wartime combat roles in Vietnam and operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He is the recipient of many awards, including the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star, three Bronze Stars, Distinguished Service Medals from each of the three branches of the military, the Navy, Army, and Air Force, and among others, two Purple Hearts. Ultimately, Chuck served as the 31st Commandant of the United States Marine Corps from July 1st, 1995 until June 30, 1999. It's truly an honor and a lot of fun to welcome my classmate, General Chuck Krulak, to It's All About Skills. Charlie, great to be here with you, uh, to be with your audience. Uh, this is going to be a, a great time, I know. I'm, I'm ready to go, man. Okay, let's, let's get it on. And to start us off, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, and so forth. Sure, I was uh, born in Quantico, Virginia, to a Marine Corps family. Quantico is known as the crossroads of the Marine Corps. And to be honest, it played an influential role in my eventual career choice. Uh, my family, being a, a military family, we moved around a lot. Uh, in my formative years, my father spent a significant amount of time overseas. Uh, he served in World War II. He served in Korea during those times. Uh, my mom was both mom and dad. And then uh, later on, uh, he served along with my two brothers in Vietnam. Uh, when he was overseas, my family spent time, for the most part, in either Hawaii or the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, by the time I left home, we had moved over 12 times. Uh, I was 16 years old the last time I actually lived at home. At 16, I departed to a small town in New Hampshire called Exeter, where I attended the Phillips Exeter Academy. Right. And uh, while you were there and when you finished, what motivated you to go to the U.S. Naval Academy? And I'm very glad you did, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it was the third high school I'd gone to. Uh, at Exeter, uh, my best friend uh, was 
uh, a fellow wrestler. I wrestled and played lacrosse, but uh, my best friend was a fellow wrestler who is the author, John Irving, who is famous for writing the Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany and other bestsellers. Uh, I had the opportunity to attend Princeton or the Naval Academy, and I chose the Naval Academy. Uh, the motto, interestingly, of Exeter is known civvy, not for self. The words over the entrance to the Naval Academy chapel is known civvy said patria, not for self, but for country. That's interesting. Go yeah, going, therefore, going from Exeter to the Naval Academy was pretty easy choice based upon the value system uh, of both of them. So uh, I chose the Naval Academy uh, because uh, I'd spent time at a school that had the same value system uh, that the Naval Academy had and, and not knocking Princeton, but uh, I did not see that same uh, focus on values in Princeton that uh, both you and I found at uh, the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. And Chuck, as you look back at that Naval Academy experience, what do you consider to be the three or four most important skills that you learned as a midshipman? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned skills because, uh, well, one, that's what, you, what you're involved with, the uh, discussion of skill sets for success. But uh, I think the most valuable, and I'm not going to use skills because I think uh, involved in the skills or the concepts that became the basis of my philosophy and, and the foundation of what we might call skills. The first was the concept that where principle is involved, be deaf to expediency. Simply I put- I remember that clearly. Yeah, simply put, your, your strongest held beliefs and values must be inviolate. They're your North Star. And when expedience comes against principle, you need to always choose principle. The second goes back to known sibi said patria. Uh, you must be willing to sacrifice yourself to a greater cause. Now, that greater cause can be in business, or it can be in the military, or it can be your family, whatever. But you must be willing to sacrifice yourself to a greater cause. In my view, uh, at the Naval Academy, that focus was on my country. The third uh, goes to the oath of office that those in the military swear to, you know, uh, to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Here, our allegiance is to the country, not to an individual. In the military, that is a touchstone. The more pragmatic skills that I learned are the ones that you and I and everybody else, uh, if they're going to be successful, already know. That's discipline, attention to duty, caring and concern leadership, critical thinking, adherence to values, decisiveness, humility, and the concept based on honor, just to name a few. Well, those are certainly good. And I'll bet you remember what Uncle Charlie, Admiral Kirkpatrick, our superintendent, used to always say at the end of the pep rallies for the football yeah. games. 
you can do anything, right? You can do, <laughs> you can anything. do anything you set your mind to. You got is, it, my friend. You got it. Well, that's lasted, uh, lasted, I think, for all of us who served under him. There was a man who took pragmatic skills of discipline, attention to duty, caring and concerned leadership, critical thinking, adherence to values, decisiveness, humility, and our honor concept, and put it all into one sentence. You, you can do it. anything. You got it. Now, Chuck, following your graduation, you entered the Marine Corps. Uh, tell us about that decision, uh, although I remember you always aimed at becoming a Marine, and you said that a little bit earlier. And in yeah. fact, you were born as a Marine almost. Yeah, well, it's re really kind of interesting, Charlie, you, and you'll find this uh, probably uh, enlightening based on what you chose as your service. I planned to go into the Marine Corps from the beginning of my time at the Naval Academy. But on my first class cruise, I chose to go on a submarine. And I spent four weeks on a diesel boat, the USS Bang, and I loved it. I loved it. I admired the sailors I met. I admired the wardroom, and I, I was uh, absolutely impressed with the captain. And I remember pulling into port, going down to the end of the pier where they had all the telephones, and I called up my father, who at that time was a, a two-star Marine general, and told him, that I was going to go into submarines. And uh, to be honest, he was happy with the choice. He said, hey, I want you to do what you want to do. Then I spent four, the next four weeks of my eight-week cruise on a nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus. And the environment was just so different. And you, you know what I'm talking about there. I mean, a diesel boat is one thing. You, you go on a nuclear-powered submarine, that's a totally different matter. And, and I realized that uh, this nuclear force was going to, you know, take over from the diesel force. The diesel force was going to go away. And uh, I decided, hey, the reality is my immediate love was the Marine Corps. I wanted the Marine Corps. And there you went. Now, you went to Quantico, um, as all new Marine officers do. What were the most important skills that you learned from that experience uh, in your, the Marine Corps training program at Quantico? Sure. Uh, I think many people realize that the Marine Corps basic school is like, like earning a master's degree in leadership. Every Marine officer has to go through the basic school. It doesn't make any difference what their occupational specialty is going to be. You can be, you're going to be an aviator, you're going to be ground, logistics, intelligence, you name it, you're all going to go to the basic school. I wanted to be an infantry officer. And because things were warming up in Southeast Asia, my classmates and I knew where we were headed. We were headed to Vietnam. This fact made all of us focus on tactics and techniques we need in combat in Vietnam. As a foundation, we all concentrated on what is called combat leadership, how to balance the accomplishment of a mission with the care of your troops. Think about that. How do you balance the accomplishment of a mission in combat with the welfare of your troops? Yep. This is something that all of us need to understand, whether you're in the military or civilian or in business, how do you, how do you balance the accomplishment of that mission, getting the, meeting the sales targets or whatever with the welfare of the people who are executing it? 
one of the things that I walked away with from the basic school is, you know, how to do that. How, how, how does a leader exhibit caring and concerned leadership and at the same time, if need be, uh, send, send their troops into harm's way? And uh, that was a lesson that yeah, stuck with me throughout my career. Wow. And that's consistent with one of the leadership principles they taught at the Naval Academy is the leadership is the art of accomplishing the mission through people. Yeah. So now you said you were headed for Vietnam and you did head for, head for Vietnam and you spent time over there. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your experience in combat during the Vietnam War. Sure. Uh, I served two tours of duty in Vietnam for a total of 28 months. I was wounded twice, once on each tour. Uh, I was an infantry guy. I commanded a platoon and two rifle companies during those two tours. I learned a great deal during my time in Vietnam. I learned that when any of us are hit, uh, we all bleed red. That it makes no difference about race, religion, upbringing, etc. I learned over time, and it served me well as I gained in rank, that you can't defeat an idea with bullets. You can only defeat it with a better idea. That goes with uh, uh, the private sector also. You know, you, you can't defeat an idea that some other company has with just uh, trying to outdo them. Yeah, the best way to do it is come up with a better idea. And I, I, I learned that. I learned that the individual Marine uh, is the lifeblood of the Marine Corps, that they'll follow you anywhere so long as they think that you truly care about them. Again, that's a critical skill. People will follow you if they honestly believe that you care about them. I learned that officers eat last. That's a, that may sound strange, but that means humility. Uh, you're the last person in the chow line. You're not the first. Uh, I learned to listen to those around you. Uh, there's a colonel by the name of John Boyd, retired, now deceased, who talked about the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act, O-O-D-A. That's That has to do with listening. You listen, you observe, you orient yourself, you decide what you're going to do, and then you act. You don't wait. So I, I learned a lot during those two combat tours. I also learned uh, to duck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to joke that I was about six foot two before I went to Vietnam and after being wounded twice, I came out five foot five, but you know, I was five foot five. <laughs> you were always six foot yeah. two in my mind, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> so now following the Vietnam War, tell yeah. us a little bit about your Marine Corps experience uh, up to the point where you were selected as uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the kind of skills, and I assume they're probably closely the same, that you put to use in your various command posts? Sure. Um, when I returned from my last tour in Vietnam, I served in some 16 
positions, both command and staff. Uh, I served at Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego as a series officer. I served as the commanding officer of the Marine Barracks at Naval Air Station North Island. I served as a company officer at the Naval Academy. I attended Amphibious Warfare School, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. I got a master's degree at George Washington University. I attended the National War College. I was the OPSO of a battalion on Okinawa, a plans officer at the Marine Forces Pacific Command in Hawaii at Camp Smith. I was a commanding officer of 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, regimental executive officer of the 3rd Marine Regiment. I went to the White House and served under President Reagan and Bush as the deputy director of the White House military officer, office. I served several tours at Headquarters Marine Corps. I was a commanding general of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command in Quantico and uh, the commanding general uh, Marine Forces Pacific. Uh, the skills that I learned over all of those time uh, and the ones I learned to depend upon was one, uh, the concept of being a man or a woman of character, uh, being selfless, having great moral courage and having a deep sense of integrity. I learned about critical thinking. I learned what it was to be hands-on, uh, but not a micromanager. I learned to provide to my subordinates the freedom to fail uh, and how important that is. I learned the and understood the concept of authority responsibility and accountability. How authority is something that's bestowed upon you by your rank. Responsibility is also something that is uh, provided as a result of that authority, uh, that you can delegate part of your authority and you delegate part of your responsibility, but you never can delegate your accountability. And I learned that and, and I kept that. That's a, a heck of a skill a critical skill to understand authority, responsibility, and accountability. And then I learned uh, to listen, listen, and listen again. Uh, those are some of the things that I think were really important that I learned. Well, they're certainly consistent with what you mentioned earlier about uh, leadership skills. Now, <laughs> now, ultimately, you were selected to be commandant. And yeah. what did you consider when that happened to be two or three of your major challenges as the leader of the Marine Corps, as the new commandant? Yeah, first off, <laughs> I never thought I'd be the commandant. I never thought I'd get past Lieutenant Colonel and the only thing I wanted to do is command an infantry battalion. So anything after Lieutenant Colonel was, was gravy as far as I was concerned. Anybody who ever thinks they want to be a service chief or the CEO or et cetera, probably is not the person you want to have in those positions. Uh, when, when I went to uh, Marine Forces Pacific as a three-star general and the commander of Marine Forces Pacific, I, I had no thought that I was then gonna become the commandant. As a matter of fact, there had not been a commandant chosen out of that position, out of the Pacific in 20 years. So, so, so Charlie, I mean, Zandy and I went to Hawaii thinking we were going to retire. Uh, 
but we did. And I, I, when I got uh, to be a service chief, I, I found the same challenges that all services chiefs sound, and they're not going to be very sexy. Uh, the first one was budgetary. <laughs> you know, yeah. you got to, you got to get your fair share of the budget. The DOD budget is is a, a free for all, and it becomes even bigger free for all as the budget gets tighter. Is is our service chiefs are going to find uh, once we pass a three trillion dollar um, uh, bill that you know you just got to find that money from somewhere, and it comes from the DOD budget uh, uh, from others. So. Uh, I was faced with a shrinking budget and a shrinking Marine Corps, and I had to deal with that. Uh, I had to, to rely on the concept that, okay, Marine Corps is the smallest, but it provides a best bang for the buck and, and tried to sell that on Capitol Hill. So you're dealing with the politics of a service chief. Uh, you have to remain, you know, have a focus that you you look at and you say, okay, my focus is going to be on the operational readiness and the value of the Corps in accordance with Title 10 of the U.S. Code. And that involved a relationship with Congress and the United States and, and, and obviously the administration. Uh, and then uh, overarching is the the idea that you had to get out and about you you could not sit behind your desk you had to get out and see your marines and so uh over the the time i served as a commandant uh i put in over six hundred thousand air miles uh flying around the world multiple times uh meeting with uh, marines all over the place whether it's a a uh you know, uh, a Marine Security Guard detachment somewhere in Africa or uh, the Marine Expeditionary Force on Okinawa. Uh, I found uh, I, I wouldn't trade my 35 years of Marine for anything. Uh, it was exciting, challenging, rewarding, and filled with seniors and contemporaries and subordinates who motivated me, who befriended me along the way. Uh, I realized I made my share of mistakes, we all do. But I tried to always make my mistakes of commission, vice omission. In other words, acting, vice not acting, risking, vice failing to meet the opportunity. Wow, well, Chuck, you, when you retired, you, you probably won't say this, but I know that you left a wonderful legacy of leadership in the Marine Corps, but then well, you retired. You. But then you retired, and then you uh, you looking back uh, in a you know in a short couple of sentences, uh, what were your thoughts as you look back the day you walked out of the Pentagon for the last time? Well, uh, I think the biggest thought was uh, the realization that being the commandant was really a very temporary job and that I was the steward of the Marine Corps. Uh, I was given stewardship of this remarkable institution for a period of four years. So when I went out, I, you know, my heart was always with the Corps, but probably the most important part was my heart was with the individual Marine and how, how, 
honored I felt to have had the opportunity to be the steward of that uh, that core. Mm -hmm. And then you entered the world of banking as chief administrative officer of MBNA America, and then as senior vice chairman of MBNA Europe until you retired in 2005. What did you find to be the challenges in that non-military organization and the skills you needed to fulfill that role? You know, when I left the Marine Corps, I had offers from the military industrial complex, uh, primarily inside the Beltway. And to be honest with you, I wanted no part of that. I, I wanted to do things that I had never done before, things that interested me as I went through my Marine Corps career. I always wanted to learn something about finance. So I joined a bank. I didn't, Charlie, I didn't know anything about finance. <laughs> An honest <laughs> but, man. <laughs> yeah, but, but I joined the banks. And within six months, uh, I was asked to come to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, to meet with the chairman uh, of the bank and really the owner of the bank. And he asked if I wanted to go to be the chairman and CEO of an international bank. Uh, which was uh, MBNA Europe. And I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, again, I didn't know much about uh, uh, being a banker and certainly an international banker where every one of the people who worked for me was, uh, except for one, was not an American, was, was, a, was a Brit or a, a, a Canadian or a Welshman or a, a, you know, Spain, a Spaniard. Um, so I got as many of them together as I could, and I put them in a room. And this is important for, for your critical skills. I put them all in a room, and they were all my leadership. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to look at each other because each one of you have forgotten more about banking than I know. And I need your help. If we're going to do what I think we can and should do, it's going to require all of us pulling together. And they looked at me like, you know, who is this guy? I mean, he's coming <laughs> in and telling me he doesn't know anything and I'm going to need your help. And, and so uh, it really, uh, I, I had my door open and I, I had a lot, a lot of success. And, and four years later, uh, I was brought back and headed up mergers and acquisitions uh, as the vice chairman of the bank. And I, I learned a lot of things. Uh, basically, they were follow-ons to what I learned as a Marine, but, but uh, it was really important to surround yourself with good people who knew the business of the business and listen to them. But in the end, rely strongly on your own judgment uh, because that's really important. Uh, you know, you have to you have to be a leader uh, and leaders listen, uh, but you're also going through the authority, uh, responsibility and accountability. At the end of the day, you're accountable for the decisions. I then went on after I left MBNA, I served on the boards of five major corporations. Uh, I served on their audit and fin finance and personnel committees. Uh, there I learned to observe, you know, avoid snap judgments take time to think things through. Uh, we use the term TTT. Uh, I then served, uh, you probably didn't even know this, Charlie, I served as the chairman of the U.S. Board of Visitors. 
U.S. Naval Academy Board of Visitors. I didn't know that, Chuck. Yeah, I was I was two years as the chairman of the Naval Academy Board of Visitors, and there I learned obviously to be loyal, to be loyal to my institution, but above all to be true to the ideas of known civi said patrie. If I saw something, or if our board saw something that worried us, uh, we had to take action. We had we had to make that known. Uh, to the Secretary of Defense, the President, and obviously the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, I served on the board of the Cleveland Brown football team and, and Aston Villa Football Club. Uh, you know, you're sitting there saying, what the hell does this little guy know about <laughs> a football team or uh, a soccer team, Premiership Soccer Club in England? Uh, and the answer is, I didn't know anything about them. But like I said, I wanted to do things that I had never thought I'd ever do in my life. And so I became a member of the board. Um, I was part of the outfit that uh, signed a 22-year-old uh, quarterback who had a two-year-old mentality, Johnny <laughs> Manziel, <laughs> to the Cleveland Browns and Aston Villa Football Club is now a, a mid-table club in the premiership. And in those, I tried to learn the business of the business. You know, what is it that a football team or what is it does Aston Villa really do? And that goes the same way with any of the corporations I was with. At wow. the end of the day, leadership is leadership. And military versus civilian is really not that different. Care yeah. for your people, listen to them, set the value system and ensure adherence understand that you cannot accomplish a mission without the support of your people. Some leaders, and, and I use that term lightly, can succeed by terror, but not for long. A non-caring leader will eventually crash and burn. Uh, you, you have to be a man or woman of character. Well, I can say that uh, you may not have known much about the businesses you entered, but you you certainly gave them 35 years of wonderful training and experience in leadership, which uh, served you very well. And I admire the fact that you said you, uh, you would take on challenges and so forth uh, when you didn't really know much about the business. That's the mark of a real leader. And you had the smarts and the leadership skills to know that to accomplish that mission, you had to do it through your people. Now, your next challenge was quite different. Again, something that you'd never done before. You, was to, you served as the 13th president of Birmingham Southern Colleges, College. Now, tell us about your decision to take on that role and what were the challenges you faced and the skills you needed to muster sure. uh, during that tenure? Sure. As I indicated, when I left the Marine Corps, I realized that I had at least 30 more years to enjoy <laughs> a, a fruitful life. And one of the things I always wanted to do was be involved with academia. You know, well, how the hell do you become a college president? You know, do you walk around with a sandwich board saying vote for Krulak as college president? No. At the end, uh, I wanted to be a University of College president, and I was blessed to be nominated to be the president of uh, Texas A&M, uh, Davidson, Franklin and Marshall, and Birmingham Southern. I visited all of the schools but was surprised to discover that this small residential liberal arts college in Birmingham really appealed to me. 
And the reason it appealed to me was it was in dire trouble. It was $67 million in debt. It had a board of 72 people. Oh. It, was, it was on probation from their accrediting body. It had a dwindling student population. The backlog of maintenance and repair was horrendous. And those are just some of the problems. I saw it as a typical academy graduate or somebody who's been in business. I saw it as a great challenge. So I jumped at the offer to become the president. Once again, Charlie, I didn't know Jack about being a college president. <laughs> I, I just didn't. And so uh, I, I, went, uh, I went about it the same way I went about everything else. I used all the critical skills that you that I mentioned, whether in the military or civilian life, I, I brought my people together and said, here's where we have to go if this is gonna be successful. Uh, we gotta pay down the debt. We gotta renegotiate our debt. We gotta get more students. We gotta get off, a, we gotta get accredited for 10 years. We had to do all of these things and we had to do it very rapidly. And uh, uh, we, my, the, the people, the, the, you know, people sometimes knock academicians. I found them to be wonderful, wonderful people, staff and faculty. The students, you have to love them. If you don't love the students, you might as well hang it up. And, and uh, I found uh, it to be one of the most rewarding positions I held was as college president. Wow. Well, Chuck, you were uh, and have always been a model of exceptional leadership. And I can see how those organizations really benefited by, uh, by you just being Chuck Krulak. Now let's assume, uh, for example, that you're addressing the graduating class of a large high school and you're looking toward the future of our constitutional republic. One of the things you mentioned earlier when we were talking, what would be your message to these young people to challenge them to ensure our republic's survival? Sure. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many high schools I did talk to because you don't you don't increase in, increase enrollment without going uh, to around schools. I, I, it's this has kind of been my philosophy and everything. You know, the first question is, do you want to be successful in life? Uh, forget about your relationships with the business world. Do you want to be successful in life in your relationships with your family? in your relationships with your friends, in your chosen profession? Do you want to live a life of significance? And I am convinced that everybody at the end of the day wants to live a life of significance and they want to see their children live lives of significance. Doesn't have to be uh, as a commandant or a nuclear power submarine officer or a CEO of Union Pacific Railroad or anything like that. Uh, it's what they determine is living a life of significance. So I said, the answer to that, in my opinion, is very simple. It is to be a man or a woman of character. Be a man or a woman of character. Be selfless. Care more about the people around you than you care about yourself. Don't worry about who gets the credit. Just worry that the job gets done and, and really care. Uh, we have a saying, you can pretend to care, 
but you can't pretend to be there. You can pretend to care, but you can't pretend to be there. Be there for your people, be selfless. Second is moral courage. Have the willingness to tell the emperor of the empress that they aren't wearing any clothes. I'm telling you, you will be extremely valuable to your business, to the leaders above you, your contemporaries and those below you, if you demonstrate moral courage, if you're willing to do the right thing at the right time for the right reason when nobody's watching. And then the third is to be a person of integrity. Your words got to be your bond. Uh, you know, people need to count on you uh, to not uh, BS them. And once you have established that you're a person of character, I'm telling you, you are going to be successful. That's a guarantee. You, if you're a person of character, you will be successful and you will leave a life of significance. And isn't that what we all aspire to do? I mean, that's what you aspire to do. That's what I aspire to do. That's what my children and grandchildren aspire to do. Live a life of significance. Well, you want to do that? By golly, be a person of character. Well, Chuck, I can tell you that those three things you mentioned are the perfect definition of Chuck Kulak. Well, thank you. Thank you. But now, something bothers me. I can't imagine Chuck Krulak, General Chuck Krulak, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, being idle. So what are you doing these days to engage that unbounded energy that I remember so well? Well, uh, I, I'm, I became involved about, oh, now it's almost 15 years ago, with a former director of the FBI by the name of Louis Free, mm -hmm. involved in the national effort to defeat the business of modern day slavery and human trafficking. Uh, this is not the same as recovering trafficked women or children or young boys. This is an effort to disrupt and defeat the business. It is a multi, multi billion dollar business. It's the second most profitable illegal activity in the world, second only to narcotics, and the two are inextricably linked. So I have worked uh, awful hard in uh, trying to elicit Congress laws that would follow the money, so to speak, follow the trail of where dollars are going, like illegal funds, increasing the number of people that are involved in, in human trafficking, uh, you know, fighting human trafficking. And it's, it's been a very rewarding, but at the same time frustrating because uh, you take uh, two steps forward and one back in that. The second thing that I'm really involved with is something called the U.S.-Israel Education Association. It's a small uh, recon size organization that is involved in educating the Congress of the United States in uh, the relationship that the U.S. and Israel uh, have and should maintain. And it involves everything from relationships between uh, the uh, Palestinians and the Jews on the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, where 
we started uh, a Judea Samaria Chamber of Commerce that now has 800 businesses, 400 uh, Palestinian business, 400 uh, Jewish businesses, all of them integrated so that you'll have a, a Palestinian CEO and a Jewish CFO. And there are 800 of these located on the West Bank inside the Green Line. We take uh, congressmen and, and women uh, over to uh, Israel, probably unknown to the listener, but uh, right now, uh, it's against congressional uh, ethics rules for uh, members of Congress to cross over the Green Line, to go into J.A. and Samaria, to go into the West Bank. I mean, how can you make decisions, strategic decisions about uh, Israel and Palestine and Saudi Arabia, you name it. How can you make geostrategic decisions without ever being to what is called the occupied territories. I mean, it's just insane. So we got the permission through uh, the ethics committees that if we paid for everything, if we paid for their trip, their tickets, their et cetera, uh, that, and they looked like they were not going as congressmen on a congressional, congressional delegation that we could take them across the green line. And so those are two things that uh, I'm, deeply involved with. As a matter of fact, if I wasn't talking to you right now, I was to go on this latest that they left on Friday. Uh, they took uh, nine congressmen to Israel. Uh, so anyhow, those are two that uh, two of the things I'm involved in. Uh, I do a lot of other uh, minor uh, <laughs> pro bono uh, not-for-profit organizations, the Community Foundation, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, things along that line. Well, Chuck, I'm delighted that uh, you're not idle because uh, I can't think of a better person that would be uh, more qualified to take on issues as human trafficking and, and the Israeli situation. But I have one last question, a, a very important question for you, and I... I I'm just wondering what your response will be. I'm gonna ask you this question is, what's the good word? Oh, go Navy beat Army. General Krulak, you hit the nail on the head. And I wanna thank you so much, uh, General Chuck Krulak, for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. I'm so proud to be your friend and your classmate. Charlie, it's been great being with you. and. Great work with your two new your two books. If you haven't, if anybody hadn't read Charlie's books, go to Amazon. Daggone it, they're they're winners. Well, thanks for the plug, uh, Chuck. And and as for me, I'm an internationally certified coach, career coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my websites, CharlieJetCoaching.com or podcastpq.com. So I want to thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com.
We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.